Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make Walters your spot to watch the Capitals. March to the Stanley Cup. Plenty of TVs and beer selections. Caps-Panthers game four this Monday night at 7 p.m. Walters is the perfect place to watch the game. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 1-2 pitch with Soto running is hit on the ground and under the glove of the diving first baseman Walsh for a hit. Hernandez will trot in to score and racing for third is Soto as Josh Bell picks up team leading RBI number 21. And the Nationals lead it 4-2 in the seventh inning. Now Rainey ready, the 3-1 outside ball four. He walks the pinch hitter, the light hitting Renifo. Now the pitch, swing and a drive, left center field. Robles going back, still back, warning track at the wall. It's off the wall and by him, carabing back toward the infield. This is going to tie the game, and Otani stands at second with a double. And Rendon, who is one for four, one for his last 15, a chance to be the hero. The pitch, swing and a line drive into center field, a base hit. Robles has it on a hop. Otani trying to score, throw to the plate, the tag, too late. And the Angels come from behind and win it at the bottom of the ninth inning. Anthony Rendon holding his hands over his helmet, knowing he's going to get mobbed. And the Angels come back in the bottom of the ninth inning with two two-out hits to win the ball game. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, May 9th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at the Big A, Angel Stadium in Anaheim, California. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, Sunday was Mother's Day, and Sunday for the Nats ended up being a mother of an ending to a nine-game road trip. Uh, The Nats were one out away from winning two or three games. It really one of the best teams in Major League Baseball so far this season, the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, the Nats were one out away from wrapping up what would have been a very successful 5-4 and four road trip. But the Nats ended up never getting that last out. As of all people, the ex-Nat, Anthony Rendon, had a walk-off RBI single resulting in a 5-4 walk-off loss at the Angels on Sunday. A brutal ending to the Nats' nine-game road trip. Even though all things considered, the Nats going 4-5 and five on the road trip really wasn't that bad. Uh, Nats this season now are 10 and 20. You know, Mark, as you have been enjoying the beautiful California weather these last few days, us saps in the Washington, D.C. area, we have been inundated with rain this weekend, especially on Friday and Saturday. It rained nonstop on Friday and Saturday. So I guess it's fitting that a guy with the last name of Rainey 
ended up suffering his first blown save on Sunday. Look, I know that we say that wins and losses for the Nats don't matter this season, but uh, that loss, that was a tough one to swallow on Sunday. It's really the first one this year, Al, that I think you put into this category. Look, you know, they haven't had a lot of save opportunities. He had been three for three, but he had not allowed a run yet this season. And what makes this one sting? It, I mean, yes, it's the fact that it's Rendon, of course. But even beyond that, to me, it's how well they did against the Angels' big three hitters, Trout, Otani, and Rendon, and how well they did for 26 innings over the weekend. And if only he had just been able to get him one more out in the 27th inning, we'd be talking about what a phenomenal pitching job they had done in this series. And instead, it's almost like it doesn't matter what happened prior to that. Now, it does matter because there were a lot of, I think, important developments over the course of the weekend that bode well in the bigger picture. But it's tough to think about that in the wake of it because of how this one ended and who ended it, of course, against them. It's not just anybody. It's Otani. And then, of course, it's Rendon. Yeah, let's make something clear. Anthony Rendon did next to nothing in this series. The Nats did an excellent job on Anthony Rendon for so much of this series. Rendon, even with the walk-off hit, ended up going just two for 13 with two singles and no walks in the series. But of course, that doesn't feel as good as it otherwise might because of what that final hit ended up being. So let's go through what happened here in this bottom of the ninth inning. Nats came into it uh, up 4-2. Davey Martinez brings in his closer, his ace reliever, Tanner Rainey, who you know, as we've discussed, has not been used all that much so far this season, but he on Sunday was pitching on a second consecutive day. First time since April 9th and 10th that Rainey pitched on back-to-back days, and he ended up suffering a blown save, his first one this season. Rainey now three for four on saves this season. He got off to a good start, struck out Jack Mayfield on four pitches, but then the problem started. Uh, Rainey issued a one-out five-pitch walk of a pinch hitter, Luis Rengifo. Uh, Rainey then gave up a one-out opposite field single to Taylor Ward to right field. Rainey did then strike out Mike Trout on four pitches, and you felt like, all right, here's the storyline. Nats pitchers do such a good job against these three big Angels bats of Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Anthony Rendon. But then those latter two strike. Uh, Rainey then gave up a two-out game-tying two-run double to Shohei Otani off the left center field wall to tie the game at four. And then Rainey gave up a two-out walk-off single to Anthony Rendon to center field for a 5-4 Nats loss. And I tell you, Victor Robles almost came up as a hero because Otani barely beat that throw from center field from Robles, who was in the game as a defensive replacement. So all kinds of moments here in this ninth inning in which the game could have ended in a favorable way for the Nats. And it just didn't happen. Look, as someone who was here watching it all play out in front of him, and you know, if you try to remove yourself emotionally from it, which I understand is difficult for most people to do, it was really great drama there in that bottom of the ninth because of what you just all said. It's Rainey getting Trout on 97 miles an hour after they had been so successful against him and everyone else all weekend. It's Victor trying to track down Otani's ball at the center field wall. He came close. I mean, that ball was crushed. I thought off the bat it was going to be a home run. It just didn't quite get there. But he almost makes the play in center field. And then, like you said, almost uh, gets the ball in from there. And then it's, of course, Rendon with the hit. And I'm watching it all play out in front of me as Otani's racing around third. I'm thinking, Vic might throw him out. He's got the arm to do it. It wasn't a terrible throw. It kind of skipped off the side of the mound, which maybe slowed it down a little bit. But I think we also have to acknowledge... Everything that we talk about with Otani in terms of his hitting and his pitching, he's really fast on top of all that. He's a good base runner. Somebody else might not have been safe there. I think credit to him for beating the throw there. And up to that point, though, from the moment once they strike out Mike Trout, 
It's not just Rendon they held in check. It was all of them in the series. Those three were combined five for 34 with three RBI, three walks, one of which was intentional, and 11 strikeouts. So they did everything they could to hold those guys in check. Aside, there was the one trout double off Yoan uh, uh, Adone the other night. That's really it. The only bit of consequence until two outs in the ninth inning. So I think that makes it even tougher because they had done a brilliant job. Kyle Finnegan, we'll get to him, but what he did in the seventh inning was remarkable. I mean, a lot of these at-bats were coming late in games with runners on base, runners in scoring position. Their pitching staff came up huge in all but one instance, essentially, the whole weekend. And that I can't decide if that makes it softens the blow or if it actually makes it tougher to swallow of how it ended up. I want to get your take on this. Do you think Rainey's struggles on Sunday at all had to do with this recent infrequent usage and him on Sunday pitching on consecutive days for the first time in basically a month? Do you think that that had anything to do with what happened on Sunday or no? I think it would be more notable if he had struggled on Saturday, having been ice cold for a while, because he's talked about, David Martinez has talked about, he needs to pitch more. They've been trying to find situations for him to pitch, even when they're not safe situations. So if he looked rusty on uh, Saturday, then I might have been a little more concerned. But I don't think it was overused to him. He was throwing the ball really well. The strikeout of Trout's 97 miles an hour. So it's not like he had anything, didn't have anything on it. And even the pitches that gave up the hits, if you look at him, the Otani one's a slider. that It was belt high, but it's on the inside corner. He wanted it down. You know, so not great, but not a terrible pitch. And the pitch to Rendon is 97 miles an hour right at the top of the zone. Now, again, he wanted a little bit higher, but it's still, you know, it's in the strike zone right at the top. And Anthony Rendon is one of the hitters who can get that pitch. Not everyone can. There are plenty of hitters who are going to either not be able to get to it, not get their hands inside to get on, not get on top of it the way that Rendon did. I'm not looking at that. I think the, the biggest mistake of it all, and he said it himself afterwards, it's none of that. It's the walk to Renjifo way earlier in the inning. He had the opportunity, if he retires the side, to not have to face any of the big names in the ninth. And instead, as soon as he walks Renjifo, now he's in trouble. Unless he can get a double play from Ward, he's going to have to face Trout. And so that made the inning prolong. It made you know that he's going to have to face those guys. And I don't want to like absolve Rainey of this because he gives up three hits and a walk in the inning. So of course, he is to blame. But I think at some point, you also have to give some credit to the hitters who he's facing, who you just know you can't contain them forever. These are too good of hitters to be held in check for an entire weekend. And they played with fire and it finally burned them in the, the bottom of the ninth. Matt's bullpen was so good in games one and two of this series. Had problems on Sunday beyond Tanner Rainey's. Uh, Josh Rogers in the bottom of the sixth faced three batters, got just one out, was charged with two runs. He gave up a leadoff single to Jared Walsh, then issued a four-pitch walk of Max Stassi. Then Kyle Finnegan came into the game, and he officially tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings. Now, he did give up a key hit to the first batter he faced, came into the game bottom of the sixth, runners on second and third, one out, Nats up three-nothing, gave up a one-out full count, two-run Opposite field single to pinch hitter Jack Mayfield to right field to cut the Nets lead to 3-2. But Finnegan then induced an inning-ending double play and then tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh that featured what Mark uh, made mention of a few minutes ago. Consecutive strikeouts of Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Anthony Rendon. I mean, in succession, down went Trout, down went Otani, down went Rendon. And then Austin Voth in the bottom of the eighth tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth 
with two strikeouts. So you combine that with what we saw on Friday night, three Nats relievers combining for three scoreless innings, Austin Voth, Victor, Rano, and Paolo Espino. What we got on Saturday night, three Nats relievers combining for three and two-thirds scoreless innings, Steve Ciszek, Erasmo Ramirez, and Tanner Rainey. And, you know, I think it's important to keep the bigger picture in mind here. The bullpen, for the most part, did a nice job in this series. I know it doesn't feel that way with the way the series ended, but there was a lot to like with this bullpen in this series. Yeah, I agree 100%. That was a huge inning for Finnegan. And, and even the hit that he gave up that scored the two runs, it was kind of a, what you said, opposite field. He just kind of like poked it just inside the line. I don't think it was particularly a bad pitch on his part. Both, and I'll be honest, when I saw him being the one to warm up coming into the eighth inning and in what's a 4-2 game, I'm thinking, oh boy, is that really the right guy for this situation? And he came out throwing gas. He's looked a lot better here in the last few outings. Very impressive stuff from him that maybe suggests that he's going to get some more of these opportunities in high leverage spots. We talked about Erasmo Ramirez uh, the other night. You didn't get to have the pleasure of watching that one on your night off, but he was phenomenal for two innings. They really did do a good job in a lot of ways over the the entirety of uh, the series and really over most of the road trip. And again, not that a blown save in the bottom of the ninth doesn't matter because it does. And this is really the first time all year Rainey has been tested like that. He pitched great, had not given up a run, but he also was not facing those kind of real pressure situations. And we've seen in the past how he can struggle at times with that. So he's still a work in progress. But big picture, there was a lot to like about the way that these relievers went after a really good Angels lineup and, you know, with only a couple notable exceptions, had a lot of success. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It's graduation season, and so that means it is Window Nation's graduation sale. If your old windows are failing or just not making the grade, here's a homework assignment. Call Window Nation and get to the head of the class with 0% financing for five full years, 60 months, and get two free windows with every two that you buy. Window Nation windows are the best. They are made right here locally in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. Over 1,500 custom window combinations are available. Vinyl, wood, fiberglass. Price quotes are valid for six months. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. You know, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask Window Nation for the graduation sale that you heard about from Al Galdi. That's 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and get the special offer. Mention my name, Al Galdi, when you talk to Window Nation. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Needs this out. Two balls, two strikes. Here he comes. Strike three called. Cutter at the belt over the outside. And Eric Fetty pulls another Houdini act out of the hat. Well, when it came to the Nats starting pitcher on Sunday, Eric Fetty tossed five scoreless innings. And I'm still not sure how Eric Fetty tossed five scoreless innings. We need to launch an investigation. Did he really actually throw five scoreless innings with what happened in this game on Sunday? This was some job by Eric Fetty. He issued five walks. He threw just 53 strikes versus 44 balls on 97 pitches. He's facing this mighty Angels lineup that features, yes, Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Anthony Rendon. And yet somehow Fetty tossed five shutout innings. He only gave up two hits, both of which were singles. He recorded four strikeouts. But, I mean, how about some of the Houdini acts on display by Fetty on Sunday? Scoreless bottom of the first despite issuing a one-out six-pitch walk of Mike Trout, despite giving up a two-out single to Anthony Rendon, despite issuing a two-out five-pitch walk of Jared Walsh to load the bases. Still ended up being a scoreless bottom of the first. Fetty tossed a scoreless bottom of the third, despite issuing a leadoff five-pitch walk of Taylor Ward and issuing a one-out five-pitch walk of Shohei Otani. Fetty tossed a scoreless bottom of the fourth, despite issuing a one-out six-pitch walk of Brandon Marsh and despite giving up a one-out bun single to Tyler Wade on a one-two pitch. So, I mean, on the one hand, you're like, well, it wasn't dominance from Eric Fetty. But on the other hand, five scoreless innings are five scoreless innings. And here's the bottom line now with Eric Fetty. And it may not always feel like it, but he's made six starts this season. He has an ERA of 390. And he's been at least decent in five of the six starts. He had that one awful start against Arizona on April 20th at 11-2 loss, seven runs, six earned in three and a third innings. But Fetty's actually done a decent job this year. And Sunday wasn't overly impressive, but at the end of the day, five scoreless innings, it could have been much worse. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is the maturation of him as a pitcher, where in the past, on a day like that, where he was issuing walks, that he was seeing the pitch count go way up, he would let it get out of control and he would find a way to make that start collapse on him. And instead, like you said, he came through in the spots that he needed to, gets out of the first inning jam, gets out of the third inning jam, gets out of the fourth inning jam. He did it as he said, really only having one pitch that he had any faith in the cutter. Everything else was not working the way he wanted it to. And he just kept turning to that pitch when needed. The big one was the strikeout of Ward with two outs in the fourth. He caught him looking at that pitch. The pitch count, the five walks, all that, it's not good. And you know, in the long run, you need a guy to be able to give you more than five innings if you're not going to put any runs on the board. But sometimes you can f- take satisfaction in just the bottom line. The bottom line was zero runs allowed, however he had to do it. And it's not to 
make an apples to apples comparison here, but it did remind me of sometimes when Max Scherzer, you knew he didn't have his best stuff on a given day and he was getting himself into jams all the time and somehow he'd get through it and you say, boy, how did he pull that off? There was a little bit of that going on here with Fetty and I think that's an important step for him and something we haven't always seen from him. When everything's on and really good like it was in Colorado last week, he can be great. But can you still be effective even when you don't have your best stuff? And that's what he did in this one. Yeah, uh, Fetty's last outing was that 10-2 win at the Rockies last Tuesday night. One run in seven innings. He, in that game, became the first Nats starting pitcher to complete at least seven innings this season. I mean, he's been, I think, the Nats' second-best starter this year. Josiah Gray's number one, Fetty's number two. So I give him credit. It was actually, in a weird way, very entertaining to watch him on Sunday because you're like, how does he keep doing this? But he kept doing it, and I think he deserves credit for that. There's something to be said for that, for putting up five zeros when you have like no business of putting up five zeros in a game. The Nats offense on Sunday. So this was a weird one for the Nats offensively. A lot of hits. The Nats finished the game with 11 hits, also worked three walks, but all 11 of the hits were singles. This was another one of these Nats games this season in which there's just not a lot of power on display. I know the Nats hit the three homers on Saturday night, but uh, that power was not on display on Sunday. Nats went three for 13 with runners in scoring position. There certainly were opportunities in this game for the Nats to score more than the four runs that the team ended up scoring. Uh, You had Michael Franco going one for four. He left five men on base. Yadiel Hernandez, one for four. He left four men on base. Uh, Juan Soto did not end up having a very good series. You know, we talked about the job ultimately that the Nats did do on uh, Anthony Rendon in this series. Juan Soto in the series, two for 13, two singles and no walks. So, you know, I don't want to paint it as like the offense was terrible in this game because that's not fair. But it obviously wasn't good enough, and uh, it was one of these, like I felt like, punchless Nats offensive performances, the likes of which we've seen a good bit of so far this year. Yeah, and there were points there in the sixth and seventh inning that I'm thinking to myself, okay, they're winning this game, but boy, they could be up by a lot more if they just delivered a couple more hits in the right moments. And we've talked about it all season long, the lack of extra base hits for whatever reason that have just not been there. You know, the ability to put the bat on the ball is good, of course, but there are times you need to make more solid contact in that and get the ball in the air. It's still a lot of hard ground balls, not just from Nelson Cruz, who's been like the number one culprit of that, but Soto has been doing that a lot. Others have been hitting the ball on the ground a whole lot. Franco, I think, is one of them as well. And the sequence that stood out to me in this one is the top of the seventh. You have the top of the lineup up. You get three straight singles. Cesar Hernandez, Juan Soto, Josh Bell. Bells is actually with Soto running on the pitch, and he gets all the way to third. He scores Cesar Hernandez, and now you still have first and third, nobody out, and what do they end up doing? They can't advance any of them. Nelson Cruz strikes out. Yaliel Hernandez strikes out. Now, I mean, Yaliel's been great, so I don't want to knock on him too much here, but that was a big uh, strikeout there in that situation, and then Franco grounds out. If just one of those guys can get the bat on the ball, get it up in the air, get another run home. We might be talking about a very different story come the ninth inning. And uh, I think that kind of stuff nags at Davey Martinez. He understands you can't force guys to hit extra base hits. You know, you can't create power that's not there. But in situations where just making contact and getting the ball in the air and getting a runner home from third is paramount, they still aren't doing that quite enough to win games that they need to win. Nats also ran themselves into another out in this game. Uh, so Riley Adams was an at starting catcher, a number eight battery, went one for three with a single and a walk. The single came with two outs in what ended up being an at two run six, but the two run six could have been much more. Uh, Riley Adams ended up getting thrown out of third base and by a mile uh, for the third out of the inning. 
2-2. Line drive center field. Base hit. One up in front of Trout. Franco trying to score as Trout has dropped the ball. Heading toward third is Adams. He's going to be tagged out by a lot. Now, Mike Trout sort of bobbled the baseball in center field, so I don't know if the Nats got overzealous or what, but, you know, you hate to see that. You know, Riley Adams, your catcher, making the third out of the inning at third base like that. And again, he was out by a lot. The play wasn't close. Right. So as that play is going on, what you have is Gary DiSarcino, the third base coach, is waving around Michael Franco to score on the hit. Riley Adams is the trailing runner. He's approaching second. The play is right in front of him. He sees Trout bobble the ball and got a little overzealous there. I think he did that on his own. I don't think DeSarcina had even gotten to the point of telling him to hold up or keep going. And the problem there is you have to know who that is out there and what he's still capable of doing, even if the ball gets away from him a little bit, because Trout threw him out, like you said, with no difficulty at all. Who knows what else happens that inning if he holds up, but that's an error of aggression, which, you know, generally speaking, you're okay with, but he was out by a lot. And that's that's one where in your mind you have to be, as you see it playing out right in front of you, you've got to remember not just where the ball is and what happened, but who it is out there and understand that that's not the guy to try to do that on. No, no, absolutely not. Now, that play happened off a hit by Alcides Escobar, who actually ended up doing a decent job in this series. Now, he only started two games, but uh, Alcides over those two games, three for six with a triple at RBI single another single and a walk. Uh, Escobar on Sunday, two for four with an RBI single and another single. The play we're just talking about, Escobar in that Nats two run six, a two out RBI single to center field for a three nothing Nats lead despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And then Escobar in the Nats one run third, a one out opposite field single through the right side of the infield despite having been down at 1.12. So two plate appearances in which he was down one, two. He turns those plate appearances into productive ones. And, you know, that is the Escobar who we saw last year. So I think we have seen some signs over his last few games of the Alcides Escobar of 2021. I mean, you know, I don't really think that's uh, taking you anywhere or anything like that, but at least it doesn't feel like he's going to be as bad as he was earlier in the season throughout this season. It feels like he is maybe possibly finding himself offensively anyway. So that was good. I mean, he was actually one of their better hitters over the two games in which he played. Yeah. And it's putting the bat on the ball is the main thing. You know, when he was really struggling there a few weeks ago, he was striking out a ton, which is not like him at all. So he's getting the bat on the ball and he comes up with those hits, those contact hits that we've become accustomed to the last few years. You know, does it suddenly change the outlook on him as a uh, as their shortstop for the rest of this season and you know how he fits into the big picture? No, but at least you're getting something from him. Really, the bottom of the lineup was doing all right in producing the two hits from Escobar, the hit from Adams, a walk from Adams, a sack fly from Lane Thomas, who was hitting seventh. Michael Franco's actually been pretty decent for them here uh, the last few weeks. So, I mean, on this trip in general, like, again, step back, take the big picture outlook here. The lineup did a pretty good job all weekend. They came into Sunday's game averaging almost seven runs a game on this trip. So there is, is some stuff happening there. Nelson Cruz reached base three times, uh, with two walks, but it, you know he hit the home run on Saturday night. So maybe there's a little bit of signs of something from him. I can see the lineup starting to come together. And, and what's funny is in a lot of ways, this game is probably more like I expected more games to be this year, where they do score some runs, they hold a lead, maybe kind of goes back and forth late. We saw that a lot late last season. Really hasn't happened this year. They've been mostly lower scoring games that haven't flipped much late for better or for worse. I wouldn't be surprised if the kind of game we saw today, we see more often now moving forward. 
Yeah, uh, it certainly felt like coming into the season, you would see losses like this where the bullpen blows a late lead. Unfortunately for the Nats, I mean, they haven't had many late inning leads this season. So I think that's part of why we haven't seen what we saw on Sunday more frequently uh, so far this year. Yeah, it was interesting with Nelson Cruz on Sunday. He had a single and two walks. Each one came to begin an inning. He had a leadoff single and then two leadoff walks. And I got a kick out of this. You know, Cesar Hernandez had three hits on Sunday, all of them were singles. He's not having a great year, but you know, he's number one on the Nats in hits. No Nationals player has more hits than Cesar Hernandez this year. So there you go. I'm not sure that that's really worth a lot, but uh, that's kind of interesting given uh, who else is in that lineup. Well, so he had a 12-game hitting streak that was finally snapped on Saturday. Kind of a quiet 12-game hitting streak, but it was. And then he bounces back with three more on Sunday. So is he the ideal leadoff hitter? No, but he's kind of doing what he needs to do. And I think if Soto is producing behind him, we start paying more attention to what Cesar is doing because now all of a sudden he's scoring runs off hits by Soto and then Bell behind him. And they kind of need to get that going a little bit more because it's funny, like individually, you look at some of these guys and say, okay, he's doing all right. This guy's doing well. This is all right. And But collectively, it's not all just meshing together and they're not stringing together the right kind of hits in the right moments as a team. No, they're not. And you know, you know me, I'm not big on RBI, but that Juan Soto has six homers and eight RBI this season, that really is odd. And it speaks to not enough people being on base when he homers, but it also speaks to him coming up with runners in scoring position and not coming through so far this year. And, you know, runners in scoring position, that can be kind of a fluky, fickle thing. And, you know, it's a small sample size. You can't get too caught up in it. Oh, he doesn't know how to hit with runners in scoring position. Give the guy time and he'll get hits with runners in scoring position. But that is bizarre. I mean, we are 30 games into the Nats season. Soto has six homers and eight runs batted in. That is a strange stat line. And I believe he's now two for 24 with runners in scoring position. So it's not like he's had no opportunities. Maybe there could be more, but it's not like he hasn't had any and he has not delivered in those spots. Thank God for Josh Bell behind him has made a big difference in that. So yeah, Juan Soto, we really haven't seen the best version of him yet. This year, been little glimpses here and there, and certainly he's hit for some power and driven himself in uh, a number of times, but he's not driving in other guys. And look, I don't necessarily think this has anything to do with it, but as we talk about all spring going into the season, he's batting second. And I wonder if somewhere in the recesses of his mind that he thinks about that fact and that it is a little different situation than what you normally expect for a guy who's going to be a big RBI guy driving in runs. I'm not suggesting they change that, but if it keeps going at this rate and for whatever reason he's not driving in more runs that aren't himself, maybe you do have to look at somebody else hitting second and dropping to third. I don't know that those extra at-bats, I haven't looked it up to see how many extra at-bats he's gotten by hitting second right now versus third, but maybe he would end up with some more opportunities to do something and just feel more comfortable as the kind of hitter that he is batting third than batting second. I'm sure you're going to disagree with me on this one. Well, no, I mean, look, all one should do is look across baseball and great hitters for teams are batting in number two spots throughout the sport. So, I mean, you know, and I'm sure he knows that. Like, he's not a dummy. I'm sure he's aware of that. It's interesting, though, you bring up about the extra plate appearances. So over 162 games, each spot in the lineup is worth more or less like 17 plate appearances. So, you know, it's not nothing, but if it's going to dra- if you feel like it's drastically reducing the performance of someone, then you could say, well, it's not worth the extra plate appearances if the guy is going to be, you know, 70 percent of what he can be. So, you know, that would be an interesting thing to look at. But I would just say this. If they took Soto out of the number two spot, I would put Bell in the number two spot. You need to get your best guys up there as often as possible. You know, the Angels, for parts of this year, have batted Otani, Trout, Rendon, one, two, three. They've done that. And look, we know Joe Madden is Davey Martinez's mentor. So, 
I, I mean, I, I don't think teams should ever be reluctant to just give their best batters the most plate appearances possible. Yeah, if you have the depth to do that, then yeah, absolutely. And I think the Nats, what Josh Bell has done has helped a lot. If Nelson Cruz is hitting, I think it's also a different story because now you have a legitimate threesome. But I'll give you another name that you can make the case could hit second right now in front of Soto, and that's Yadiel Hernandez. A lot of what he does kind of profiles as a number two hitter, if you think about it. And if you get the two Hernandezes at the top, followed by Soto and Bell, it might be worth a look here at some point. I think we do have to talk about Nelson Cruz maybe not hitting cleanup for very long unless he starts getting going a lot more than he has. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a conversation that does uh, need to happen at some point if it hasn't happened already. All right, so we have some, we actually have quite a bit of non-game Nats news uh, for this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Before we get to the retirement of a prominent and popular former Nat. Uh, Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross, it sounds like we're getting closer to minor league rehab assignments for these guys. Uh, what's the latest on them? Yeah, so they are now ready. They've, they've thrown a couple of uh, live bullpens, as they call them, facing live hitters down in Florida. And now they're ready to take it the next step, which is a simulated game in Florida. So that means like multiple innings, two innings where you are facing hitters and trying to sort of simulate the idea of at-bats. They may not have fielders out there or anything, but you know you want to throw roughly like 15 to 20 pitches, then come back to the dugout, sit in the dugout for 10, 15 minutes, come back out and throw another inning. So the funny thing is, is just by happenstance, Strasburg and Ross are on the same pitching schedule right now. So they can do this in unison. And like one guy's pitching for the visiting team, one guy's pitching for the home team. They'll get their two innings in against whoever's down there right now in Florida and move on. But that's pretty much the last step before you then go out on a minor league rehab assignment. Now, that doesn't mean like within a week that's going to happen necessarily. They might need more than one of these simulated games. And at some point here, they will start being on a true like five-day pitching schedule. But I think we're getting close to that point that they now send them out and maybe they're ready to go three or four innings in a minor league game and you do that a few times and all of a sudden once you get the pitch count up it's kind of like you're ready to go so you know i'm saying we're about a month away i'm gonna guess on both of them i mean there are a lot of things that still can go wrong can change that timeline depending on how it goes but if things go as everybody hopes I'm, i'm thinking we're about a month away maybe from seeing both of them in the big league rotation and is one guy ahead of the other guy, or you think it could be that both guys come up at more or less the same time? It seems like they're about the same, like I said. And um, now something could happen on one or the other that, that delays it or slows it down. But if they both do what they're supposed to, in theory, they should be throwing the same number of pitches, same number of innings on roughly the same schedule now. So I, I could see it. We've got a little ways to get there, but it'll be kind of fascinating to see when the time comes. Do they call them both up simultaneously? Do they put them back to back in the rotation? Who loses their spot? I mean, there, there are a lot of questions to be answered at some point here. But boy, that would be a nice problem to have if that does happen, let's say, in about four weeks from now. Yeah, will be interesting to see. The other big Nats news from Sunday is that the baby shark is retiring. Uh, We on Sunday afternoon learned that Gerardo Parra is retiring and is joining the Nationals front office as a special assistant. Uh, If you remember, he was with the Nats in spring training. He did not make the Nats major league team out of spring training. And he ended up opting not to report to AAA Rochester. I was actually going to ask you about Parra because we had not heard much about his status and what was going on with him. And sure enough, He has decided to not report to Rochester and to join the Nats. Now, joining the front office as a special assistant, is this like George Costanza's special assistant to the traveling secretary? Or or is this this like a real position in the Nats front office? 
look, they have a lot of special assistants to the GM. They are come in a variety of different roles. Some of these are scouts who go around and, and you know look at players from all over the country and give Rizzo uh, reports on them. But others can be more, you know, in uniform and, um, you know, helping out in more of a coaching role. That's what I would guess we're talking about here. Parra's best qualities are his personality, his ability to bring out the best in everyone and to keep everyone loose. So we'll see. We haven't had a chance to really ask anyone about this yet, what it's going to entail. But my thought is, it's more likely to be seeing him in uniform before games, on the field, in the clubhouse. You know, it might not just be at the big league level. There could be some bouncing around to the minor leagues and helping out some guys there. But I don't think Mike Rizzo is going to be uh, sending Gerardo Parra out to some podunk town in Oklahoma to scout a first round draft pick. It's not going to be that kind of special assistant. I think it's going to be big league and, you know, in uniform kind of stuff. It's really an interesting legacy, if I can use that word, with Gerardo Porro that he has with the Nats. Because obviously, there's the baby shark craze. There's the post-home run dugout dancing craze. You know, we had all of these things in 2019. But what I think can get kind of lost is that, is that he was a legitimately productive player for the Nats. This wasn't just some baby shark gimmick for a guy who was doing nothing for the team. Like, no, he actually meaningfully contributed in 2019. Remember what happened. The Nats signed Para in May 2019 off him having been DFA'd by San Francisco. He looked done uh, with San Francisco. He was not good at all for them offensively. He comes to the Nats 2019 regular season, 204 plate appearances, slugs 447. He, in that 2019 regular season, posted the following slash line with runners in scoring position. Batting average, 373. On base percentage, 421. Slugging percentage of 824. He, with the bases loaded in the 2019 regular season, hit two grand slams. So this guy was legitimately productive for them during that incredible run to make the postseason in 2019. Didn't necessarily play a lot in that 2019 postseason, but he was a key factor in the Nats making that postseason. And then one of my favorite things is, okay, the Nats bring him back last year for a second stint. Remember, he didn't play in the majors in 2020, was in Japan. And in his first plate appearance for the Nats at the major league level last season, what happens? Here's the pitch. Swing a line drive, base hit left field, down the line, toward the corner. Burrow rounding first, heading for second. It's a double for Gerardo Parra. He provides a pinch one out opposite field double into the left field corner in a two run Nats seventh to drive the Mets starter Taiwan Walker out of the game. The Nats won the game 5-2. This was last June 20th and Nationals Park erupted in a manner in which the stadium really hadn't since that 2019 World Series. I mean, you talk about like having a knack for the moment. This guy really had it. So, you know, I don't want to overstate what he was for the team. And I know that not everyone loved the baby shark stuff, but it's pretty cool what he did as a Nationals player. It's a true impact from someone who, in the grand scheme of things, wasn't here that long <laughs> when you think about it. And I agree. What he did in 2019 off the bench, let's not diminish that. I know a lot has happened since then, and 
you know, not all of it was great for him performance wise, but for a period of time there, as you outlined, he was as clutch a hitter as they had and was consistently coming up in big spots for them and delivering big hits when they needed it. This is at a time, remember, when the team is trying to climb back from 19 and 31. And even when they started playing well, we're still thinking they're not going to have enough time to make it all the way back. And he was a big part in keeping that going all summer long. And, you know, the baby shark thing happens by accident. Uh, He's slumping at one point. He decides to shake up his uh, walk up music. He has them play what his daughter's favorite song is. It's in the opener of a doubleheader against the Phillies in June. The crowd kind of laughs at it the first time, like, what is this? He ends up with an RBI hit, and he had a couple of hits in that game. And now all of a sudden, oh, well, this is going to stick. This is going to become a thing. And it was so remarkable to see how it truly, naturally all developed over the next few weeks where the fans got into it. The Nationals didn't try to make that happen. It just happened naturally. The fans loved it. It became a thing. And it became a thing because Parr would deliver in those situations so often. And my favorite ones were not when he was ever in the lineup and you're playing Baby Shark, you know, in the bottom of the second with two outs and nobody on. The favorite ones were in the bottom of the seventh. And here he comes off the bench and they've got a couple runners in scoring position. This is a big situation. And you could feel the energy that it brought everybody And then when he would deliver, the reaction to it was as big as anything you were going to get all year long. So it was legitimate. They put the little baby shark in the World Series ring, not as a gimmick, but because it did mean something to them. It really was a big part of that season and that run. And he was so important to it. Um, So I I think no matter whatever happens, I I think he is always going to be one of the first names we think of associated with that team, that championship. And even if he doesn't work for them for many years, there will always be times that his name comes up or he'll come back to visit and is always going to get a warm welcome in D.C. Well, the Nats on Monday will have a much-deserved day off in terms of no game. This was some road trip, nine games. Uh, the Nats haven't played a home game since April 28th, which feels like about five years ago right now. And what's up next for the Nats is a six-game homestand against two of the best teams in the majors so far this season, a three-game series against the Mets, followed by a three-game series against Dusty Baker, And Houston, you know, I know that strength of schedule is more of a football thing than a baseball thing, but consider the Nats schedule so far this season. Started the year with a four-game series against the Mets, then a three-game series at Atlanta. You've had two series already against San Francisco, which is having a good season. You just played a three-game series at the Angels, who are having a very good season. And up next, three more games against the Mets, and then three games against the Astros. Both of those teams are doing really well so far. The Nats are not a good team. Let me make that clear. But boy, This schedule has done the Nats no favors so far this season. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And really, aside from the eight-game losing streak on the last homestand, which was pretty wretched, everything else so far has kind of been okay. Some frustrating moments, to be sure, but there have been some encouraging moments as well. What they did in San Francisco, I think, was good. Uh, We saw some good things in Colorado, and really, we saw good things in this series. And if Tanner Rainey makes one more pitch in the ninth inning, we're talking about them winning a series on the road in Anaheim against such a good team. Uh, a five and four road trip. I think there are reasons to feel good about how some of this is going. It doesn't suddenly make them into a good team or a team that's going to contend anytime soon. But if this season is about finding the positives, especially from the young guys who could figure into the future, I think there is some evidence of this one month in and not just one or two guys, but like three, four, five guys that you could say, okay, I've seen development there. I've seen some stuff that makes me think they could be a part of this for the long term. Yeah, and one thing that was nice about the road trip 
the starting pitching really wasn't bad. At times, it was quite good. And it's starting to feel like, okay, maybe the starting pitching isn't like a complete disaster this year. Like maybe these guys are growing and it's not going to be every game that you close your eyes after the second inning because you're, you're afraid that the starter is going to come out after three and two thirds. Like we're starting to see guys go five, six innings. We're starting to see some good outings. So that's good. Hopefully we see more of it. We shall see. Big test coming up with this six game homestand. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, your memories of the Nats 2012 National League East Championship season, the first season of the Nats' tremendous run 2012 through 2019. Let us know what you remember about that 2012 season, your favorite moments from that 2012 season. Uh, You can send a written email or a voice memo email, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers again, Podcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Now the pitch. Swing and a long drive to right center field. Way back. Going. Going. his eighth home run of the year. He drives in his fourth run of this game. Well, they blast over the big wall in right center field. Yasiel Puig never moved. Bang! Zoom goes Para. And dancing through the conga line, a huge hug from Anibal Sanchez.